Well, let's go ahead and pray. Hope your windows are up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for bringing us together, for giving us your word to study, and for giving us hearts that want to be here and want to hear from your word. I pray again, as we always pray, that you would humble us, give us um, eyes to see, and strengthen us from being in contact with your word, uh, which, which lasts forever. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, we come this week to Acts chapter 20. Uh, just a little a program note, I guess you could say. We are, we've had a couple of Sundays in this quarter when we've had um, uh, special meetings, as you'll recall. And then I did one chapter in two weeks, which I wasn't planning on doing in two weeks. So that adds three weeks to the quarter. So we won't actually be done with this class until like the third week of June. Normally it'd be the last week of May, all right? So we're stealing some from the next quarter. And then we're gonna make some announcements and let you know what we're gonna do in the summer. And uh, that'll be coming up. Keep your eyes open for that. Haven't quite gelled the, exactly how we're gonna do that, but we'll, we'll let you know. So that's the plan. Acts chapter 20. Um, I want to reiterate a point, really the main point that I made last week, and, um, and that main point is this, all right? And the more I get into the book of Acts, the more I see this as really important, because it seems to be the thing that they keep talking about over and over and over and over again, as I'll show you today. The main point I made last week is that the message of the gospel Gospel means what? Good news, right? The message of the gospel is much bigger than we have come to believe. We have reduced the gospel down to a message of personal, individual salvation, right? So God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, or um, when you die why, and you stand before God, why would he let you into his heaven? Or don't you... You know, if you believe in Jesus, you can go to heaven when you die. That's been, the whole gospel has been reduced down to that. That. Personal, individual salvation, which means you go to heaven when you die. That's it. Uh, even in the best presentations of the gospel today, that is, even if it's a little fuller than that, that's still kind of the main point. Um, but when we actually read the four gospels, Right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the book of Acts, and then the epistles of the New Testament. That is not the main point of the gospel. Even the, even the chapter in the Bible that uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15 is that little summary of the gospel. Remember that? Uh, this is the gospel I preached to you. Christ died for our sins, according to scriptures, raised from the dead. You know, that little passage there is in the context of something bigger, and where he goes in, in 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection, and not just the resurrection, but all of Christ's enemies being placed under his feet. In other words, kingdom. All right, even the, even the chapter that's about the gospel is about the gospel in a broader context. 
So it's not the main point of the gospel. Um, it is a point of the gospel, the good, the good news, the gospel message. It is an important part of it, but that message of personal salvation fits into a much bigger picture that we have almost entirely lost sight of. And the bigger picture that we have lost sight of in the West, in the modern West, is the kingdom of God. God Almighty made Adam to do what? What is the first command given in, the whole, in all of scripture? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. It's, a, it's, a, it's spread into the whole earth and rule over it. And that's what he says, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the creatures, rule. It's a command to rule. That's what, Adam, that's what God put Adam on the earth to do as his um, vice regent, you could say. Adam rebelled against that command, the command of God, uh, namely the, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? We know that story, we can't rehash that today. But he rebelled against the command of God and as the representative, the head of the human race, he plunged all of mankind into ruin and rebellion along with him, that's the fall. And as a result of Adam's rebellion, as a result of his abdication of his rightful rule over the earth under God, and in a sense trying to usurp that, instead of being under God, being like God, as a result of that, God let all the nations go their own way. And he let them worship other gods. which are not little fairy tale made up make-believe entities like the, the Easter Bunny, but actual entities that have actual existence and actual power, okay? That's what you find all in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Real intelligent evil entities that are worshiped by the nations. So when Jesus comes as a man, he comes as who? Who is he? He's the second Adam we read in Romans and 1 Corinthians. He comes to, to do what Adam didn't do, which is he comes, to, he comes to reclaim the rulership of the world, of the nations. And he comes to restore the kingdom of God to its rightful boundaries. The rightful boundaries of the kingdom of God are the cosmos, the world, the whole thing, the whole creation, including all the nations. That's why we sing in Psalm 2. I've got a slide for you. Here we go. This is, how, this is what we sing, part of what we sing in Psalm 2. This is God speaking. This is God the Father speaking. And he says, but as for me, I have installed my what? My king. This is the gospel, right? I have installed my king, Jesus, upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, he said to me, now this is Jesus speaking, the son. You see this? God says, I have installed my king, and then Jesus says, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. This is God the Father talking again. You see this? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. The whole, the ends of the earth, all of it, will be yours. King Jesus, my king whom I've set up on Zion. 
And so when Jesus comes, what is the first thing that he says? The very first thing we have recorded that Jesus says in his public ministry is the summary of it is what? Repent for why? Don't you want to go to heaven when you die? No. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All the summaries, as a matter of fact, all the summaries of the gospel, all the summaries of the, you know, the nutshell version of the gospel as it's found in all of the New Testament, all the summaries of the good news in the New Testament have that as their main message. Jesus has come to reclaim all the nations as his. What Adam forfeited, Jesus reclaims. God has given all authority in heaven and on earth to him. All right? And so God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. That's what's going on. And so Jesus inherits the nations. His kingdom rules over all the nations. This is Daniel 7, one of the prophecies of Jesus himself coming into his inheritance, into the possession of his kingdom. This happened at the resurrection. This happened when Jesus was raised from the dead, and as we just re- I just read to you from Ephesians, by the way, when God raised him from the dead and seated him at God's right hand. This is that. Daniel 7 is an account of that. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. This isn't Jesus coming back, this is Jesus going up. He comes to the Ancient of Days, to the throne room of, of the Lord God Almighty. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That happened when Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended to God's right hand, seated at his right hand, and he was established as head over all things, over every name that is, that is named. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. Not only physical, but spiritual, everything. Yes? Um, that's, a, that's a big question that I don't have time to answer. Um, it's a title for the, for the Messiah throughout the Old Testament, especially Daniel, son of man. And that's, of course, what Jesus calls himself more often than anything else. Well, because he's a man. He is a man. He's God and he's a man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good question. I don't know. Not, we don't have time for that. <laughs> Andy can answer that in the intricacies of the Hebrew. <laughs> now, that is why Luke, to get back to the book of Acts, okay? Luke, in the book of Acts, often summarizes the preaching of the gospel like this. I don't, I'll, let me just read them to you. Acts 8.12, but when they believed... When they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God, so what was Philip preaching? Well, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, all right? Acts 19.8, and he entered the synagogue, this is the apostle Paul, 
and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. That was last week, Acts 19. What he's talking to them about for three months is the kingdom of God. Acts 20, 25, we'll see this today, where the apostle Paul himself says, and now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. So his own summary for all of his work was preaching the kingdom. That's what he said. Acts 28, 23, the last chapter of the book, when they had set a day for Paul, this is in, in Rome, where he's under house arrest, when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning into evening. And then the very last verse of the book of Acts is this, two verses, 28, 30, and 31. It says, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. We'll get to that. But again, again and again and again and again, that's Luke's summary of the gospel. What are you preaching? The kingdom of God. All right? And we have become so, uh, our our vision of this has become so shrunk down that we can't even see when it's over and over and over and over and over again. There are huge swaths of scripture that we can't even, that don't even register with us because all we see is, don't you want to go to heaven when you die? The good news is that the Lord Jesus has set up his eternal kingdom and you can be a part of it. He's set up his his eternal kingdom. That's the good news. And he's the judge of all the earth. And you're either going to be in the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of, of God. And if you remain over here in the kingdom of Satan, you will be destroyed. Submit to the king. That's the message of the gospel. One benefit of being in the kingdom of God is that you have your sins forgiven. One benefit of being in the kingdom of God is that you have your sins forgiven. Look at Colossians 1. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Oh yeah, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's almost an afterthought. It's certainly a subordinate clause, okay? Um, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But the main thing is that you've been transferred from the kingdom of Satan, the dominion of Satan, to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. That's the main thing. Now, we're going to see that bigness all throughout the rest of Acts, all right, a bigger message than just, don't you want to go to heaven when you die? It's all through the scriptures, Old and New Testament, from cover to cover, and it, if, if we miss it, then we almost miss everything. That's why I'm harping on this. I'm harping on it because the Bible harps on it. Maybe someday I'll teach a whole quarter on it. We'll see. So let's get into the book of Acts chapter 20. Here we go. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time at the end. Okay, so I'm just going to read the bulk of it and, and then slow down towards the end, towards the middle. So... Verse one, after the uproar had ceased, that was the uproar in Ephesus, 
that we left last week in a hurry with, right? After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So in other words, he changed his route. The Jews knew what his typical route would have been and knew where they could catch him uh, to kill him. That's, the, that's, that's what's going on here. They're gonna ambush him and kill him. He gets wind of this, and so he goes another way, the way that they wouldn't expect, all right? And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Phyrus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy and Tychicus and Tropimus of Asia. So he has a whole band of men with him. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days and there we stayed seven days. So just, this is almost just, uh, we went from here to here to here and this is the map. So he starts, this account starts at Ephesus. Um, he goes back up through here, goes into Macedonia, comes down to Greece. Then he's trying to come back and he comes all the way back here and now it ends here at Troas in verse six. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, this is not having dinner, this is the Lord's Supper. This is a worship service. First day of the week is Sunday. They're having communion together, breaking bread. And Paul is preaching. First day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Right? This is a long sermon. But think about the, this is a man who knows, as we're going to see in a minute, he's never going to see these people again. He's never going to see them again. And he's a pastor, and he loves them. And so he has things he has to teach them and tell them and encourage them. And so he, he goes on and on and on till midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. Strange detail. I, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sill, sinking into a deep sleep. Um, I think it's the fumes from the lamp, <laughs> not the boring preaching and the hour. Okay. Uh, it's funny, you read the commentators on this? Well, we'll see what happens. Then I'll, then I'll give you the, what the commentators say. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. So he's sitting in the window. You've, we, this is a Sunday school story, right? We all know this story. Um, many, M Matthew Henry says, that's what you get for sleeping during the preaching. Seriously, that's exactly what he said. Oh, yeah. He says, this is a judgment of God for, for sleeping while, while the pastor's preaching. You fall out a window and you die. <laughs> that's why we have things nice and low. So, Eutychus means lucky, by the way. That's what that name means. So good old lucky, falls out of the window. Not very lucky. But Paul went down and fell upon him 
And after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled for his life is in him. He's just mostly dead. And when he had gone back up and had broken, no, he was really dead, he really was. And when he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with him a long while until daybreak. So round two starts from midnight on to daybreak after raising the kid from the dead. And then left, and they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. All right, that's all we're going to say about that. Verse 13. But we, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Assos, intending from there to take Paul on board. For so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. So he's going to walk a distance, and they're going to come and pick him up. They're going to go around the coast and meet him. Uh, Homer, I think it's in the Iliad, says this walk from Troas to Assos is like kills, kills people. It's incredibly, incredibly difficult. And for some reason, Paul says, that's what I want to do. I'm going to, take, I'm going to go by foot. You go by boat. I'll meet you at the, on the other side. We don't know why. Interesting. And when, we, when he met us at Assos, we took him on, to, on board and came to Mytilene, Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we crossed over to Samos, and the day following, we came to Miletus. This is just telling them where they're taking port. They're, they're hopping along these little islands there. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So he doesn't want to go to Ephesus because he knows if he stops in Ephesus, he's going to spend a long time there because he loves these people. This is the people he'd been with for, um, what was it, three years? Right? He knows if he stops in Ephesus, he can't leave. He just, he couldn't do it, but he, but he has to do it. So he doesn't go to Ephesus. He goes to the coast. They land the ship. They land at this little town called Miletus. And then, here's the, the meat of chapter 20. This is where we'll spend most of our time. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus short way up, the, up in, inland, and called to him the elders of the church. Church had been established. It had elders, multiple elders, and he calls them. He has to see them one last time. All right? And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, how I was with you the whole time. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul, he has to meet with these men. He had worked with them. He had suffered with them. He had gone through conflict with them intense conflict, as we read in the last chapter, chapter 19. And what he says about the conflict um, that he endured in Ephesus, he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 32. He says, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Some people think he literally was put in the Colosseum, in the, in the theater, and did what often happened at this point, People would, you know, the leaders would put Christians, you've heard about this, facing the lions or dogs or hyenas or whatever and make them fight against the wild beasts. Uh, many of the old guys think that's what happened with Paul. 
We don't have an account of that. What we have an account of is him fighting with men. Demetrius, or is it Demas? Who is it? The silversmith from the last chapter, Demetrius. And that kind of thing. Whatever it was, he said, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. All right? So in other words, he had fought with, not against these men, but with them. Right? And when you fight with men, your heart gets bound together with them. And so he has to see them. He has to see them this one last time. But he, as he sa- he's going to say in a minute, he knows he'll never see them again. These elders don't know that yet, but he knows it. And so he wants to give them one last encouragement, one last face-to-face instruction, not just by writing, but in person. And so he begins by talking about himself. Now he begins by talking about himself not the way we talk about ourselves. The way we talk about ourselves, if we're prone to talk about ourselves, is either to puff ourselves up or to denigrate ourselves, usually in some kind of a false humility, right? That's not what he's doing. He's serving them by talking about himself. And he's telling the truth about himself. And what does he say? You yourselves know. You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. He's talking about his manner of life. He's not saying, if you read this with a different emphasis, you you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. That's That's not where the emphasis goes. He's not talking about the fact that he was physically present with them. The emphasis is on the was, how I was, my manner of life, how I lived my life. You know how I lived my life with you. From the first day to the day I left, I was consistent. Here's what I was like. You know it. Okay? How was he? How I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord. All of his life was service to our Lord Jesus. He never served himself. He never served himself. He he never served men by flattering them, by telling them what they wanted to hear, right? He served the Lord. Everything he did was service to the Lord. How did he serve the Lord? What did that look like? He has, uh, I think, six points. that he lays out. Number one, serving the Lord with all humility. This is not false humility, but a deep awareness of how little and how lowly you are. All right? He knew he wasn't worthy to be a servant, let alone a son. He, he was serving the Lord, but he knew he wasn't even worthy to serve the Lord. He served the Lord with all humility. And secondly, and with tears. Serving the Lord is hard work. It's hard externally, but it's harder internally. Uh, After, when in 2 Corinthians, when the Apostle Paul is talking about all of his experiences up to that point, all of the um, external trials that he had had, being shipwrecked, being beaten with rods a number of times, being whipped, being stoned and left for dead. Remember that passage? He goes on and on and on and on about these external trials. But at the end of that, he says, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. And when you read that passage in 2 Corinthians, that, you get the impression, that outweighs all the rest. Those are just external things. 
But the thing that you can never get away from, the thing that he always carries along with him, no matter where he is or when he, what's going on, is the concern, the pressure of the concern for the churches, right? The pain, the, uh, the anxiety of, of are they going to be okay? And that's a pressure that a true shepherd can't get away from. It's a daily pressure. It doesn't stay in the church office when you go home. Right? It's not like, oh, I'll leave that. That's why, yeah, some of us retire. It doesn't stay in Bloomington when you go on vacation with your family. Right? They're just, you can't get away from it. A shepherd carries the weight of souls and families and children, and there really is no relief. And so he serves the Lord with all humility and with tears. Sometimes the tears are because he got beaten with rots. <laughs> you know, sometimes the tears are because the Judaizers, the people, their souls are at stake here. And then he says, and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, here are those external trials, slander, threats, actual physical attacks. And then he says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. In the middle of all of that pressure, in external and internal, threats, slander, physical attack, he did not do the one thing that would have brought him relief. The one thing that would have brought him relief was to not say those kinds of things anymore. He didn't shrink back from declaring what was profitable. You see that? Or in other words, helpful. He, didn't, he, he did not hesitate. He did not shrink back. He didn't, didn't say, eh, I better not say that. That might get me in trouble. If it was going to be helpful, he said it. Think about that. People don't want to hear helpful things from their shepherds. They want to hear happy things. Not profitable things, pleasant things. That's what we want. And if they're actually trying to be helpful, we punish them. But a good shepherd serves the Lord, right? Serving the Lord. In service to the Lord, I couldn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable because I'm not serving you. In one sense, I'm serving you, but I'm serving you by being helpful to you, is what he's saying. He's serving the Lord. In serving the Lord, he tells us the hard things that actually help us. Didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. A good shepherd will say the same thing in public and in private. You know, uh, he won't make a big show of standing for the truth and lighting himself on fire and really preaching hard against sin. And then, you know, in public or in the internet or wherever, and then coming down and, and never saying that to you personally, you know, publicly and from house to house. A pastor can do all of that publicly and never be helpful to anyone because he only, because he only does it in public. If you only do those things in public, not when he's in the living room or uh, with actual men and women looking at him in the eye, feeling the vibes, you know, then you haven't actually helped anyone. This private ministry of the word is this picture an iceberg, all right? 
You know how icebergs work. You only see a little bit above the surface. And the big mass of it is under the water, right? The private ministry of the word is the huge iceberg under the surface of the little piece that pokes out in public. The, the little thing you see on the, in public is built on, is just a, the public expression of the private. It's not the other way around. It's not that the private is the, is the tip of the iceberg with this huge public ministry underneath. No, it's the other way around. The, the power and the helpfulness of the public ministry is built on private. But we pastors want nothing but the glorious sensational public. That's the easy part. That's infinitely easier, isn't it, than the, the hard work of the private. This also means that the Apostle Paul didn't care how big the audience was. A large crowd at the synagogue, fine. I'm there. Uh, a couple at home, in a private home, fine, I'm there. Publicly and house from house, house to house. Wherever the people was, he was. And this means that if a pastor wants to come to your house to talk to you, welcome him. All right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you've cleaned or not. And then he says, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He was solemnly testifying. That's courtroom language. That's life or death language. That's I swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God language. Okay? And the truth is that God commands all men everywhere, both Jews and Gentiles, to repent and to believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what he did. He solemnly testified. You must turn away from your sin, turn to God, and, re and believe in our Lord Jesus. He goes on. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, um, I am on my way to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. That's all I know. So it's going to go bad for me. But that's where I'm going. But, look what he says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. All of us, but especially ministers of the gospel, should have this mindset. All of us should have this mindset, but especially those who are called to a ministry, like the Apostle Paul was, I don't care if it costs me my life. The Lord Jesus has given me work to do. He's given me a course to run. It has an end. It has a finish line, and I can't quit. My life is not dear to me. Jesus is dear to me. You, you remember what this apostle Paul says in Philippians, right? I count everything as rubbish, as dung, as, as garbage. To, to, to reach that prize of being with Jesus. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He goes on, verse 25. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom <clears throat> I went about preaching the kingdom 
There there it is. There's a summary of his three years in Ephesus. I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. This is news to them. All right. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. He says, I am innocent of the blood of all men, because I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. This surely what he has in mind here is what God said to Ezekiel, the prophet, in Ezekiel chapter three, he says, when, you, when I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, that wicked, men, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. So to a shepherd, if you don't warn people that they're gonna die if they don't repent, they're gonna die, but then God's gonna hold you accountable for it. the shepherd. That's what God said to Ezekiel. And that's why, but the apostle Paul can say, I didn't stop admonishing you for three years. And so the blood of, your blood is not, is off of my hands. I did my job. There was never a time when I said, probably should have said something. Oh well. I'm a Calvinist, I don't have to worry about that. That's a joke. He had a clean conscience. He said everything he needed to say to everyone who needed to hear it. What a wonderful thing it is for a a pastor or an elder to have a clean conscience like that. He didn't have to go to bed at night or leave town for the last time wishing he had said what he needed to say. He said it. I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Then he gives them this warning. Be on guard for yourselves and for the whole flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things. Pastors and elders have to be on guard for themselves, Number one, and for, who else? All the flock and against wolves. Constantly on guard. That's what a shepherd is always doing, isn't it? First of all, for himself, then for all the flock, and then against these savage wolves who will come up from within their own number. That means some of the elders... No one's ever safe. You never let down your guard with anybody, even your fellow elders and pastors. So this is not a work for lazy men. This is not a work for superficial men, for selfish men, not a work for naive men. A naive man would say, oh, wait, no, he's a Christian. He he would never do that. Or he's one of our pastors. He would never do that. Or he's, you know, member of the presbytery. 
That means I don't have to think about him. I don't have to be on guard against him. He's one of us. The whole point is, these will rise from among us. It's not a job for squeamish men. And it's not a job for cold men. You see what he says at the end? Remembering that that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with a philosophical calculating coldness. Take it or leave it, I don't care. No, with tears. With tears. So all of you who are uh, elders, pastors, or have any kind of aspirations to that, those offices, this was the Apostle Paul. And now we've got to be done. Let's finish. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no, man, no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who are with me. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Paul is leaving and his only hope for these elders and the souls they shepherd is that God will take care of them. That is always a good pastor's only hope, really, right? Everything is in God's hands. I commend you to God. The only hope for change is in God's hands. The only hope is the power of God's word, which he calls the word of his grace, which is the word of his power. That is able, the word is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I commend you to God. The power and effectiveness of the work was never really in Paul's hands. It was always in God's hands. And so he can go to sleep at night. He can leave town. And no, he's never going to see them again and still have the confidence that God will work in them, with or without him. It doesn't depend on him. God and the word of his grace is able to build them up and keep them. And he says remembering, he he talks then about giving and and working, and this little line, and we really have to be done. Jesus said, uh, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So where is that, where do we, what's the reference for that in the the Gospels? No, it's nowhere. (laughs) It's not really, we don't have this quote in, in the Gospels. But Jesus said, remember, all kinds of things that aren't in the Gospels. But he said this, it is more blessed As you work and give, you are to have this in your mind, your sister, remember this as a motivating factor that you will have blessing when you give. More blessing when you give than when you get. And then lastly, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all and they began to weep aloud. They began to weep aloud. It's the third mention of weeping here, of, of tears. And they, they, they are devastated. They're never going to see, see him again. That's why they're crying. They, wept, they, they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him. They loved this man. But why, how could they not? He had poured out his life for them for three years, daily. 
night and day, publicly and from house to house. And what was he saying to them? The hard things that they needed to hear. He was admonishing them. And so they loved him. Always remember that, pastors, elders, deacons, fathers. That's why they loved him. Not because he was nice. They wept aloud, embraced Paul, repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they were accompanying him to the ship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this account, for these words of our brother uh, Paul. And I pray especially for us who are in office in your church that we would be very sobered and, and humbled and admonished and strengthened by this. And help us all to want these kinds of men, this kind of man, to be shepherds among us. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.